Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all today. My name is Ginny. I'm the interim rector here at Emmanuel. And um, if you're new or visiting, welcome to church. We're so glad to have you here today. We are in a new season of the church calendar called Ordinary Time. Uh, I have a chart for you so that you can see what the church calendar looks like. So we celebrate and live through these seasons of the church calendar throughout the year. We're always in some season, just like we are, you know, in terms of like the weather. Um, And throughout these seasons in the church year, we are following the life of Jesus. So we're learning about Jesus, about his life and how he lived and what he taught, um, all those wonderful things. We're also just like learning how to be human when we live into the church calendar, Um, how to live into these seasons of really high highs, really exciting, wonderful seasons of life, and also really low lows, the really hard things in life. We learn how to celebrate well. We learn how to grieve well. We learn how to find God in all of these seasons and spaces. And then, as you can see, so you see this white part right here that says Easter. That's where we've just ended. We are now about to live into the largest part of the calendar, this giant green chunk. Do you see it? It says ordinary time. This is where we're moving into. It's a six-month-long season. It's very long. And I will tell you, as someone, uh, as a preacher, uh, ordinary time can be really hard because we don't have the sort of like Christmas or Easter or Lent things that like push you through the text and into the greater story. We live into these really small, minute details, and we live out the realness of our everyday lives. And that's the beauty of ordinary time. And that's what it teaches us. It teaches us to live in the sort of ordinariness of life, the everydayness of life. Because life isn't mostly high highs and low lows. It's actually pretty routine, pretty normal. It's like a level path that we walk on for most of our lives. Annie Dillard put it this way, and I think this is a really helpful way for us to think about ordinary time and how we live into it. She says, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And that may sound really simple to you, but that thing of like, well, I'll get to that at some point, or I'll become that person at some point, ordinary time teaches us that that is right now. The choices you need to make to become the kind of person you are called to be, who God is calling you to be, are made in this season, in this time in the everydayness of your life. For example, you become a runner by taking up a habit of running, which sounds very simple, simplistic. Um, That's a revolutionary thought. Uh, But some of us think we are something. Think of ourselves as one thing. But when you look at the habits of our everyday lives, it would tell a different story. Ordinary time tells us now's the time. Figure out who God is calling you to be and set your life up in such a way that you become that person, that you build your character, that you begin doing the habits that you always said that you would have. Now is that time for us. We have an ordinary time engagement guide. Uh, We do engagement guides for for the seasons of the church calendar so that you can have some, you know, some of us are like, yeah, I'd really love to do that and fashion my life in this way, but I need like specific examples. We make these engagement guides and seasons for you to sort of work through the suggestions we have on there, what will work for you or your family or your whoever you live with in your home, those kinds of things. So we'll have one of those coming out soon. You'll see about it. Uh, We'll post it on on the socials Um, and you can follow that and that can help you engage in that way. We also have new books in our bookstore, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, 
will help you sort of live into this season in the ways that we think are, are, we're all being called into. One of the books that's out there that I highly recommend to you is a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. And I want to read you a, a quote from her book because I think it sets us up for this season so well together. She says, A sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole and beautiful in big ways. But what I'm slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff and get to the thrill of an edgy faith. But it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. Amen. So one last thing I'll say before we jump into uh, the text for today is that today is a very specific day in the liturgical calendar. It's a day called Trinity Sunday, which you might have noticed from our collect we read a minute ago. It's a day in, it's the first day of this season we call Ordinary Time or the season after Pentecost, as the Book of Common Prayer calls it. Um, and so we're living in this, uh, the Spirit has come and now we are living out our lives. And the very first thing we do as a church, is we think about the triune God, uh, which is a really heavy thing to do and a hard thing to do sometimes, but I think it's a, really, it's a really important practice for us, and it sets us up for what I think is the season of living into what it means to be Christians who believe in a God who is three in one. So we're going to do some theology today, and some of you are like, we do that every Sunday, and you are correct, um, but I think Topics like this are really helpful to say, like, we're going to do some, some heavy lifting today together. I read this week a quote of someone calling theology, defining theology as words about God that say something about everything. So that's our task today, is to figure out what the Trinity is saying about everything. So let's read the scripture together in Matthew 28. And in our practice of being embodied, if I say something today that you like or that you think is true, or even if you don't, um, let me know. Helps me be embodied with you all and know that we're together on this. Got it? Especially with things like Trinity theology. Okay. This is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Very last verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Trinity is uh, this idea that God is one, but also God is three. 
which is a very complicated thing to think about and understand. And I will say at the outset that this is not something that Christians sort of invented over a long period of time. It is something that Christians began to understand and see in the witness of Scripture and the writings, uh, particularly of the Gospels and of Paul in the New Testament. Um, but that we began to sort of be able to speak about it in articulate, way, in articulate ways over a long period of time. So it did take a while for this sort of idea to like, come in fleshed for us. But it is not something that we came up with. You can see the witness of the Trinity all throughout Scripture, even in the very beginning verses of the Bible. And so this is not something that we made up, is what I'm saying, something that we have understood through the witness of Scripture. We see the Bible referring to the work of the Trinity in so many different ways, and you can say it uh, in so many different phrases, but things like, we are saved by God, through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. By the Spirit, we are united with Christ and receive adoption as children of God. We can know God through Jesus by the Spirit. So you can see the work of the triune God in these statements, that there is something uh, holistic and particular about the work of God as three in one. And then also we, have, we do have this history, um, the history of what it meant for us to understand God as three in one, uh, as people sort of post-resurrection, figuring out how to talk about this and how to think about it and how to become institutional about it. Um, there was what there always is for Christians when we try to get institutional and serious about something, bloodshed. Uh, not great. I think in the end, maybe God's going to be like, you worked so hard on the Trinity and I'm so glad for that, but you, you missed the boat on not killing each other over it, um, unfortunately. So, but that is part of the story, is that people, as this idea was coming together and we were figuring out how to talk about it and how to think about it, believed so deeply in the importance of this issue uh, that people literally died over it. Uh, people were martyred over it and persecuted over it. And that's not to say, like, didn't we do such a good job? But to say this thing is really important. And from the very beginning of the church, we've been saying we have got to learn how to say this right, how to do this right, how to think about this in the right way. So I want to read you a little bit of uh, the Athanasian Creed, which is uh, the creed that kind of comes out of this movement of, of understanding the work of God as three in one. And I think it's just really beautiful. It's like a beautiful poem. So let's read it. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. This is my favorite part. So in everything, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. So you can hear and see from that this work of like, let's say it the right way and also not miss these other right things about it. And it's like this kind of like dance from like left to right. Like let's say it this way, but we can't leave out this part of it, right? And you can hear the sort of tenderness and also like fierceness in this creed of trying to understand this incomprehensible thing, which leads me to the last point of just this sort of introduction about the Trinity is this idea of mystery. We can't fully explain or understand this idea of God as three in one. And that's why there's been so much arguing about it over the centuries. 
So when we think about and talk about the Trinity, we have to agree, like this is the first place we come to as people who are talking about something as incomprehensible as this. You and I come to the table and the very first thing we agree on is this is a mystery. And I don't mean that in terms of like, it's a secret that we aren't allowed to know. That's not what we mean by mystery. Mystery meaning in the way our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters think about it, mystery as a hidden process at work. That's what the Trinity is. That's the mystery of the Trinity. And that's how I like to think about the Trinity in my own life, is that the Trinity is a hidden process at work in me and in the world around me and in you and in this church. So the Trinity as a process of something that's hidden but getting lived out in the world, it's a mystery. You and I come here not because we're excited to prove what it is that we believe on Sunday mornings, right? Is anyone here for that? You and I are here because we believe there is a hidden process at work. And you and I both have said yes to that mystery. And so we go on Sunday mornings to church to say yes to that mystery and worship the God who is that hidden process at work. Amen? So that's where we start when we talk about the Trinity. So now I want to say a couple of things about the Trinity, and then we'll close, but that will be in several minutes. I just made it sound like I was almost done. I'm not, so I just didn't want you to be surprised. Um, So the Trinity. The Trinity tells us who God is and how God acts. Let's say all this together. You ready? This is what we're moving into. The Trinity tells us who God is and how God acts. So those are the two things we're going to talk about for the rest of this time. God in three persons, we talk about the being of God, who is God. God in three persons is in essence relational. That's what the Trinity tells us about the very essence, the very being of God. Michael Reeves says in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is at the root of who God is. Another uh, theologian says, Cynthia Rigby, she says about the nature of the Trinity as relational. She says, the Trinity tells us That God not only does things for us, God is for us. That is what the Trinity, lived together, three in one, tells us about who God is and how God relates to us as well. God teaches us to be for another because that is who God is. So you think about this triune God existing before the creation of the world, deciding that the world ought to exist, breathing life into it and calling the creation good that that would be evidence enough of the fact that God is relational and wants to be in relationship with us and has called us into something greater than us with God. That should be enough, right? It doesn't even stop there. That actually God, throughout the witness of Scripture, doesn't want to be disconnected from this creation and continues to work God's way into our lives in ways uh, like tabernacling, uh, tabernacling among us, coming and being present among us, working through the mysteries of the world so that God can come and be with us. And even that wasn't enough. And so God sent his own son to come into the world to be with us, to be one of us, to die at our hands. God is for us. Amen? God is for us. Because that is who God is. God cannot be anything else. 
that is what three in one tells us. God is relational at God's core. And so when God creates something to be in relationship with God, that thing gets involved now in this relationship and this commitment and this very being of who God is. God cannot not love us. It's who God is. There is no separation from us anymore because God came to us. He stopped at nothing in order to bring us into the work that is the Trinity, this work of three in one. Three in one invites people into it, into the thing that's happening in the very heart and presence of God. And because God made us in his image, we are also relational. We are meant to lean outward, to live outward toward each other, Growing into Christ-likeness is not about our own purity and holiness. Growing into Christ-likeness is I'm becoming holy because that's what's best for you. Me being as Christ-like as possible means I am loving you. I'm not building up something, a, a personal holiness of my own, for my own sake, because that's what God requires of me. What God requires of me is to love you. And the holiest, most pure version of myself is what will love you best but will create a world, an environment where you can be loved by me. That is what God calls us into in creating us in his image, my holiness for you. We often think of God-likeness as ultimate power and control. You know, you see someone, we have a gym next door, and we see people working out real hard and running around our parking lot and looking like beasts, and like this temptation to look at those people and be like, that person is God-like, you know, um, like running with giant weights around the parking lot and looking like they may barf afterwards. Like that person is powerful, God-like. Or we think about that in terms of presidents or leaders, people who sort of have a larger-than-life thing to them. We call that God-like. And in reality, God-like is relational, related, someone who makes and keeps a promise we should say that person is godlike. Someone who is a really good friend. That person is godlike. Jesus takes this idea of power that we have confused we in the world with the way we understand and define power. He brings it down from heaven and speaks a better word over that word in particular, power. He uses his power to cast out demons, to set people free. He uses his power to heal people. He uses his power, as he says, to lay down his life. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again, Jesus says. So this idea that power is, is something that puts me over you is wrong in the eyes of God. The Trinity invites us into seeing power in that way. That power is the power to lay my life down for you. To do something for someone else. That's what real power is. That's what the triune God witnesses to us. So if that's who God is, God at God's essence is relational, is Trinity. What does the Trinity tell us about how God acts? I think the Trinity tells us that God acts with particularity. And here's what I mean by that. We think about the Trinity and the work of the Trinity, and we think about God as creator, Christ as redeemer, spirit as sustainer, 
God in three persons, acting with particularity. God is specific and particular in how God chooses to act, so much so that God's very being reflects that particularity. And here's why that's good news for you and me, because God has, does, and will act in your life in very particular ways. I think a sin of our age is believing this idea of deism, that God is a great clockmaker and set the clock to run and now is like standing back like this. And I know some of us are like, no, I don't believe that. But the way we tend to live our lives, 100% says that. That God maybe acts in your life generally by like holding everything together and maybe sometimes will like throw something in there to protect you or save you from something. But on the whole, God's very being in your life is general. The witness of the Trinity says that is not true. That God acts with particularity in your life, in your heart. God has particular, special, beautiful things for you, perhaps all around you all the time. We come into this space and it's so easy to feel like separated from what's actually going on in this space. Do you know we come in here today to worship the living God? And yet we come in, you know, hoping we can feel something sometimes. Unsure of what the right moves are, the right things to do. Wanting to be moved. God has particular things for you and I all the time in our life. God wants to speak to you particularly and give you beautiful and special gifts that are just for you. He has a life and a purpose he's called you into, and it's particular, and it's special, and it's exactly what he has called you into, and we know that because God is three in one. God, God's self had particular lives to live, particular things to live out through God as three in one. He calls you into that too. His purposes in your life are just that way. The Bible's full of examples of, the, of this idea, and I think the most compelling one to me is Exodus 3. I, you know, there are some scriptures where you, you open it up and it's like they just light on fire in front of your eyes. You feel about, that way about any chapters in the Bible? Anybody? Nobody? Yeah? Huh? I open the Bible to Exodus 3 and it's like my whole life makes sense. Who God is makes sense. So Moses grows up in this sort of two-culture world where he is one of the slaves by birth, uh, but by adoption he is one of the royals. And he lives a very uh, confused life because of that. And he attempts to sort of fuse these worlds together at some point in his adulthood and things go wrong. And he has to run away. So he runs away to go into a third culture, uh, lives there for a very long time. And uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of the ordinariness, of life, there's a burning bush, and God tells him, take your shoes off, which is a very particular thing to say, and then God tells Moses who God is and what God is going to do through Moses in very particular ways, and Moses tries to get out of it in every way possible, and God instead, every time he says that, tells him how he's going to get him through what he's calling him into. And I think one of the reasons, uh, this is the scripture where God says, you know, Moses, like, who should I say sent me? And God says, I will be who I will be, or I am that I am. Tell them, tell them that. 
which you're like, of course Moses was like, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. (laughs) But I think what God is doing when God says God's name in that way is saying, you don't need to worry about the generalities. Live through the particulars of what I'm going to give you each step of the way and what's about to happen in you and your life of the people that I'm going to save. These particular ways, all of the rest of that first half of Exodus is God working in particular ways, particular and surprising ways to save God's people. And he does it through this person, Moses, and gives him these very specific, tangible things. Take your shoes off. Come see the fire that's not burning up the bush. Very specific and tangible incarnational things he's calling him into. Do you believe God works in your life this way? I remember I preached a sermon like a long time ago, years and years ago, about how I'm always looking for burning bushes, and I had someone come up to me and be like, I am not, ever. Is that okay? And I think, I think back then I was like, sure. And now I think I would go back in time and say like, no, I think you need to be looking. I think there are burning bushes everywhere in your life. I think God is working particularly and specifically to and for you, saying things for you in such a way that would make you feel loved and whole and purposeful that we're missing all the time because we believe something untrue about God. That God lives and exists through us and in us generally. That God is just generally interested in you and your life. That's not true. God is specifically and particularly interested in you and your life and the world around you and what he's calling you into and how to live into it in that specific way. So I think there's two things I want to say about how God acts as Trinity. What does Trinity tell us about how God acts? And the first one is the particularity. But the second one is, is surprise, is surprisingly. That's what it tells us about how God acts. It's surprising that God, this thing, God, that humanity has imagined and tried to understand all throughout human history. Uh, we have imagined it for most of our time as humans as impersonal, power hoarding, um, scary, terrifying. It's surprising that when God shows up, God is actually relational, egalitarian, inviting. That should be shocking to us, surprising to us, and that God would involve us too. Not only that God would be kind and relational, but that God would say, come in here to what it is that I'm doing. You get to come too. You're invited too. That should be surprising to us. It should change our lives. It should change the way we think about ourselves and God. That God would use Moses, an old man with a stutter, to speak powerful words of truth to the most powerful person on earth to set God's people free. That should be surprising to us. What is he calling you to do in your life that would be surprising to you? After Moses messed up, ran away, and tried to argue his way out of it, that God would still use him. The whole story of Scripture and the witness of every human life in relation to God is that God will continue to use human beings to bring about God's purposes despite our failures, despite our inadequacies, because God believes in the human project more than we do. The Trinity is the witness to the surprising reality that God wants to involve us, that God's very being is involved with another, 
and you are invited into being involved in this way with God. Three in one says something about everything. So let me tell you a story just to end our time together. A story that was is an old story for me, but it has come back around in something that God has been saying to me. So in college, if you can imagine, I was very moody and sad and um, and had it was just going through probably the hardest time in my life and felt this sense like I need God to throw me a life raft. Like I need something from God. So I did that Bible roulette thing where you're like, and um, what I landed on was uh, a minor prophet named Zechariah, which you're like, I hope she got something, um, which I did. Um, in that text, Zechariah writes uh, God, from God's perspective, whatever touches you touches the apple of his eye. And I had the sense that that was for me. And to spare you a lot of details, because we'd be here for 15 more minutes, apples, things, just started showing up in my life in different ways. And I began to feel like every time I saw it, uh, saw one or saw something, uh, it was God just giving me a little nudge, like, I'm here. I'm in your life. I love you. I believe in you. I'm actually working. You're going to be okay. And this was all so beautiful and meaningful to me. And I thought that might be the end of the story. It wasn't. So a friend of mine was living in Washington, D.C. for the summer, and I went to go visit her uh, for a few weeks. And I have an uncle, my dad's youngest brother, who died just before I was born. And I, for some reason, because I am a very touchy-feely person, had, uh, have for my whole life believed that we are spiritually linked in some kind of way. So he's buried in Arlington, though, which is beautiful. And so we walk all the way on Sunday morning out to where he's buried, and um, we go sit for a while, and we separate, and I sit there, and I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm here. Give me something wonderful, you know. And then like 15 minutes go by and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just going to bake out here in the like 150 degree weather in Washington, D.C. And um, nothing's sort of happening. And so I start looking because I'm bored and start looking through the clover that's around his grave for four-leaf clover. Because I'm like, at least that will make me feel lucky. (laughs) And um, so (laughs) walk away with something. So I start looking And I find this tiny green apple and was like, whoa. Like it was the very thing that God has been speaking to me there in my hand that I found buried into the earth. And then I look a little bit more and there's more. And then I really look and actually I am completely surrounded on all sides by tiny green apples. The man is buried underneath an apple tree, and I'm surrounded with the thing that God tells me in my life. I love you. I have a purpose for you. I'm going to do something in your life. You are perfect and special to me. I love you. I'm like completely surrounded by this image. And it's always been special and meaningful to me, but recently I have been um, walking with a spiritual director and That's what I sit in every single day before we begin talking about what God's doing in my life. Because she's like, what's the truest thing about you? That It's that God loves you. What is the image that will take you there to believe that? And so that's where I sit for like five minutes every time we sit together. And now every time when I pray, it puts me in that place. 
And that's what I want to say to you about the work of the Trinity in your life and in the world. Like, that's the place, not just me, that all of us sit all the time, is that when you think, like, maybe God is working somewhat in my life, somewhat generally, like, maybe there's something for me here, some one thing, and you start to look around, and it's not just one thing. It's thousands of things all around you, all speaking something true to you and who you are and what God's purpose is in your life, surrounding you, holding you in. That's life as a Christian in the world where the triune God exists. Relational, particular, surprising. That's the God that we worship. That's the life and the story that you and I are invited into. Thanks be to God.